0: 16, we have Christ addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees at the time were the religious elites, but they were also the civil elites within the state of Jerusalem. Now they were under Roman occupation, but this is essentially like you're speaking to both your pastor and also your mayor at the same time. These are people who have the power to, and they do, eventually send Christ to his death. And so he is using a metaphor the story of Lazarus and the rich man to rebuke the Pharisees. This, I imagine for some of us, if we live in the world, this would sound uh, incredibly foreign to us. We probably haven't even heard the, we've heard the story often, but have we heard it in the context that Christ was telling it? Have we heard it in the context of Christ speaking directly to the worldly authorities of his time, the legalists and the Pharisees who ran his culture and his community? I think today we live in a world where the gospel has been so watered down. The gospel has been turned into, uh, it's good news for you individually. It's good news for you in the in, in, the, in your heart of hearts. But it's not good news for you, you as, a, as a part of a body. It's not good news uh, for the nations. It's not good news for the peoples. It's just good news for you in secret, right? It's just good news uh, if you take this and believe this. But that's not what Christ is doing here. Christ is telling actually some pretty dark and disturbing news, not just to one person sort of that he's built rapport with, but he's telling it to a group of people who have declared themselves his mortal enemies, who ought to be led by him as their king, but they choose instead to, what what does it say at the beginning of uh, verse 14? It says, the Pharisees who were covetous, they were covetous. So they were breaking the 10th commandment, heard all these things. So Christ has been going on and on teaching them many things, teaching the disciples, teaching the Pharisees and the sinners who had gathered around. So the Pharisees hear all this and they're covetous and they heard him and they deride him. So the religious and civic leaders of his community were deriding him. As it said, you can't be a prophet in your own land. These were his people choosing not to follow the one true king and their true Messiah, but choosing their own wickedness, their own legalistic practices, the religion that they had built up for themselves. And then he says, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Let's return to the, to the, the reading. So he goes on and on and he says, there was a certain rich man. Now, the first thing that we should notice here is that we don't know the rich man's name. Now, this is a common practice in scripture where the enemy is unnamed. We don't know the name of Pharaoh, for example, and that's because God often deems it right that his enemies should be forgotten to the annals of history. And I think that this is actually a good lesson for us to take. If, if somebody is your enemy, if someone is the enemy of God and the enemy of the church, they don't have to, you don't have to uh, give them platform by naming them and by uh, really giving them what they want, which is often attention. So there was a certain rich man. He was clothed in purple. Purple was an expensive dye and linen and an expensive uh, cloth that was also delicate. So you wouldn't be wearing it if you were like working. He fared sumptuously every day. That means he ate well. He was eating good, as they say. Every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. So now we know the name of the Lord's friend, the faithful in God, Lazarus. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate and full of sores. Think about that for a minute. There's a beggar sometime in ancient Jerusalem, ancient uh, Israel, whose name has been passed down from the point that this story happened and was witnessed by God in heaven to the point that Christ is telling the story of the Pharisees now and has been preserved by the divine preservation of scripture to the point that now we have Lazarus's name. God exalts a righteous man and Lazarus must have been a righteous man because here he is in, in the, in scripture, in the gospel of Luke. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus who's laid at his gate full of sores, full of sores He's sick. He's dying and desiring to be fed with the crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. So he's outside the gate of the rich man's house, desiring to be fed with the crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs came and licked his sores. He wouldn't even be left alone by the beasts. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. So the beggar dies and angels, literal messengers from God, descend from heaven, lift the beggar lazarus up and draw him into the bosom meaning like the warm embrace of abraham his the father of the faith abraham imagine for a minute you are a jew in israel in ancient times you've heard of abraham the man who as an old man was called out of his father's house into the land of Eden, into the south into the land of canaan so Imagine that you've been hearing about this man, your grandfather's, 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 grandfather, times many, many generations. And the first thing after death is being lifted up by angels into the warm embrace of your grandfather. This is an image of how God the father loves us. This is an image of our relationship with uh, not just our earthly father, but God, the father, the original father, the provider and creator of all things. And this is what the believer has to look forward to. This is what the believer has to look forward to, that when we die, it's not darkness and in it non-existence, right? This is what the world, the world wants you to believe, that you die and it just goes black. And that the entirety of creation and reality is entirely encapsulated between your first conscious experience out of the womb to your last conscious experience in death and then it's just black. And You know, they don't even the world does not even have an epistemology that would allow them to justify belief in anything, you know, on either end of that. So they really it is just (laughs) the, the philosophy of the world is the things that I experience and see and believe is the sum total of reality and anything beyond that is someone else's truth. Right? It's some other subjective. It's completely absurd, and I know that it sounds absurd. But you have to know what you're dealing with when you're out in the world, and you are dealing with a philosophy of absurdity, a philosophy that denies God and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And so, when you hear the nonsense that goes on out in the world, and you try to make it make sense, what they're doing is they're they are assaulting your faculty of critical reasoning, and they're trying to exhaust you into capitulation with the world. And the simple fact is, all you have to know is. Romans 1, the creature knows the creator, but suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He holds the truth in unrighteousness. He doesn't want to believe, He so he says something that's not true. But the reality is, when you die, if you're a believer, it's not non-existence, it's not the blackness of the void, it is not... Anything that the world tells you, it is closer to this. It is a lifting up of angels into the bosom of your fathers, and and your father's fathers, and the great father, God in heaven. The rich man also died, and he was buried. This sort of implies that maybe the beggar wasn't buried, right? And in hell... So the world will tell you that there is no hell. The world will tell you that there is no heaven, but the world is wrong because here we know that in hell, he lift up his eyes. So the rich man is in hell, lifting up his eyes in the torment. And he sees Abraham, his grandfather's grandfather's grandfather, far off. And he sees Lazarus in the warm embrace of his Father Abraham. And he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Just a drop of water from the tip of his finger. That would be a relief from the flames of hell. If you've ever run a long distance or worked a very hard day in the hot sun and you get a cool water and you drink it and you notice it's only under the circumstances of like extreme heat or effort that you really notice the coolness of the water going down your throat, yeah? Imagine then, if, if that's the hottest experience that you can conceive of, imagine infinitely hotter, infinitely more, more torturous... And the feeling of just a drop of water. That is what the rich man is calling out for. But Abraham says, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that they, which would pass from hence to you, cannot, neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. This great gulf is the most offensive fact of the gospel. This great gulf that the unbeliever simply cannot by any power compel himself into heaven is the great offense of the gospel to say to man that you are not autonomous, that through your reasoning and your moral ability, you cannot span this mighty gulf that God has wrought. Abraham himself, who is righteous in the faith, cannot span that gulf and it's both ways by the way the believer the believer cannot condescend to unbelief in order to help the man that is in hell and the unbeliever cannot elevate himself into heaven it is simply an unspanable gap it is undoable it is beyond reality And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest... And I just want to remind you, this is what Christ is saying. This is the Lord of all lords, the great physician, the great philosopher. You think... I was thinking recently that Moses must have been one of the greatest philosophers, that he, that, that God would condescend and, 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 and give this man such great wisdom that he would be able to run a nation. And then I got to thinking, well, no, he, he is one of the great philosophers, but even greater is our Lord. And what did our Lord do? What was the nature of his love of knowledge? His love of knowledge came right out of scripture. He quotes scripture constantly. He quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, I will make... All of your enemies a footstool. He quotes scripture constantly. And so the greatest philosopher who ever lived was constantly referring to scripture and constantly reaffirming the faith. And and now in this case, he's saying to the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he's saying to them, you are this rich man. You are this rich man who's thinking that in this life, all of the things that you have done and all of the uh, good things that have come out of uh, this life, you think that that is somehow religion, true religion, the, the pious observance of God law, God's law. But Christ, our Lord, the greatest philosopher, the greatest man, God-man, the only God-man who ever lived is saying to them, it's an unspanable gap between this beggar and, and people like you. Because you didn't hear the prophets, you didn't hear Moses. He said, he says, go and tell my family, send someone to my father's house that I have five brethren that may testify unto them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses, they have the prophets. But if one of them comes, if someone comes from the dead, they will repent. No, if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't hear one coming from the dead. And this is actually a foretelling of Christ's own resurrection. He does come from the dead and he does tell the truth. And yet there is still unbelief in the light of this indisputable, incredible fact of history. And so we should read Luke 16 and the natural man should shudder to think about his state and the believer should rejoice in knowing that he will be lifted up by angels to the arms of his fathers that he will go to heaven that he will be rewarded in heaven not for anything that he's done but just because he has been chosen by God by God's grace that he would have faith unto belief I wanted to read from this today because it is scary. There is a lot of scripture that is scary when it says that you, that the way you treat the least of these is the way you're treating the Lord. That should, that should make the natural man shudder in terror. It is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And when we realize that we are beggars, sore, lying in the dirt outside of the gate of a rich man, and that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the earth, and that by mere belief, God will store up our name into eternity, gather us up at our death into him, In eternal glory, in the fires of power and salvation, we will be sanctified and held up forever. Good night. That is glorious. That is glorious and beautiful and encouraging. And so we are brought out of depravity, out of the depravity of fear in the natural man. And we are lifted and we are immersed into glory and heaven with our God. Amen. Thank you for your time today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the example of your son, Lord, for his teachings, Lord, that we would be convicted, Lord, by his power, his grace his omniscience lord we are so grateful for his example lord we're so grateful that we're called to pray in his name lord that you would hear our prayers and that that they would be effectual lord that we know that anything that the son does ask of the father the father will provide lord and we just ask that you be glorified that you take all the glory that your will be done here on heaven and and in on earth lord father forgive us for where we've missed the mark help us to do better in the future and we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A
1: few uh, a few weeks ago, or several weeks ago, uh, Brother Ben brought forth a message on God's grace, and I don't want to take away at all from that message. Just simply add to it and. Uh, There's no way in one message or even several messages that you can fully adequately uh, describe God's amazing grace. And so we look forward to being able to share some verses that might direct our thoughts in that direction once again. It's said that John Newton, who wrote the song, the familiar song, one of our favorite songs, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that uh, there were a couple of verses that, that really sort of um, uh, provoked his thinking on this. And one of them is First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16. And it's David, and it's the thought that David had, King David. And it said, And David the king sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is mine house? "'that thou hast brought me hitherto. "'Who am I, Lord, and what is thine house "'that thou hast brought me hitherto?' David, the little shepherd boy who ended up being king and having a great deal of authority and influence, was asking this question of the Lord, "'Who am I, O Lord God?' And what is mine house that thou hast brought me hither to? The second one that Paul, the apostle Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. So the author of Amazing Grace just simply started out and he said, I am what I am. Uh, I am where I am. I am who I am. By God's amazing grace, not based on my own accomplishments or the accomplishments of others, but God's amazing grace. Grace defined is God's unmerited favor bestowed upon undeserving individuals. It just means that God is kind and gracious to people that don't deserve it at all. Brother Danny has brought forth uh, the uh, eternal aspect of salvation. And grace is uh, is very much a part of our eternal aspect of salvation. In Romans uh, chapter 3, he describes before us here, he describes, he starts out and he says, As it is written, uh, referring to the Old Testament, he says, as, as it is written, there is none that's righteous. No, not one. So that just pretty well establishes that every single person, no matter who they are or where they are, or what age they live in, that that is our condition aside from Christ. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth and there is none that seeketh after God. And Brother Danny was talking about that large gulf. And truly there is a gulf. And aside from God's amazing grace, there would be a great gulf between us and Christ. Uh, We are so far much lower than uh, Christ. And he is so much higher than what we are. And there is a tremendous gulf between the two. Just simply means there's a tremendous gap or difference between the two. But Jesus Christ For the child of God closed that gap. And he did it completely all by himself. He didn't ask for any assistance. He didn't ask for any help. He solely closed that gap himself. So you are related and in the family of God and in the family of Christ because of what Jesus Christ did. And he did it completely. He didn't ask for any help. He didn't do it part of the way, but he did it 100% of the way. So he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It gets worse. I mean, you can continue on down. And it's basically talking about all of us aside from the grace of almighty God. But then he comes down and it's sort of uh, there's some encouraging verses a little bit further down. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he sets the stage right here that the Old Testament law, the uh, Old Testament example of law is. It's not going to pay the price for our sin or justify us before God. And it's not going to fill that gap. Not at all. Not anything that we can do to abide by the law will fill that gap that uh, brother Danny brought forth. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe. For there is no difference. And then here's what Paul says. He told us this in the first part of the chapter. He's reiterating it right here. For all have sinned. That's every single one of us. That's all of Adam's family. That's every single person that's been born on this earth. He says, for all have sinned and they've come short of the glory of God. That's where we would be. That's where we would land aside from the grace of almighty God. He says, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he says, being justified freely. So here's where grace comes in again. Grace is God's unmerited favor upon undeserving individuals. He says that we're justified freely, not by our own actions, not by our own choices, not by our own works. But he says we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed Through the forbearance of God. You are justified in the eyes of Christ by what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And it's by God's grace that you're a beneficiary of it. It's because God chose to have mercy upon you. God chose to favor you. God chose to uh, put a mantle of love about you. He chose to pay the price for your sins. So you're justified by nothing else than God's amazing grace. Um, Another place that it talks about the eternal aspect of God's amazing grace. Grace is God's grace is of great benefit for us in the eternal aspect. But God's grace is also a great benefit for us in every day which we live here in this life. It's a great blessing and benefit for us. It's by his grace that we are even a heaven bound and a child of God. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Love Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened. That just simply means he made us alive. He describes our condition and you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and sins. And then he comes down and he describes us by nature. Just like he says in Romans chapter three, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. He says, Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversations in times past, fulfilling the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were simply following the enticements of Satan without any restraint. Aside from God's amazing grace. So he describes our situation, and it's, it's describing the situation of most folks now before the experience of grace. There are some folks that experience God's grace at an early age, there are some folks that might experience God's grace. While yet in their mother's womb, we have the examples of those that experienced God's grace upon their mother's breast. Uh, We have the example of John, uh, the uh, the forerunner of Christ who experienced God's grace while yet he was in his mother's womb. We have the example uh, on the opposite extreme of the thief on the cross who lived uh, an ungodly and a riotous life. Uh, A life away from God, not serving God. And yet in his dying hour on his on his deathbed, you might say, uh, he cries out his profession, his confession. The profession and confession is not what caused him to be a child of God, but he cries that out because he is a child of God. And so from one end of the spectrum to all the way the other end of the spectrum At some point you experience God's grace. But before God's grace. This is the description of the individual. And he says this is our life. This is our pursuit. This is our delight. And then he comes along. And he just simply says. But God. Do you know what? That changes everything. For the child of God. That changes everything. But God. He says. But God. Who is rich in mercy. But God, who loved us with a great love. But God, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, quickened us together with Christ. And he says it three times in this in this chapter right here. He just I love how he just plugs this in right here. He says, even when we were dead in sins, Christ quickened us together with Christ. We were made alive in Christ. And then he just just a a little plug right here. He says, oh, by the way, by grace, are you saved? He just starts out to to tell us how it happens right there. He says, you're in a bad shape. You're in a bad condition. You're in a helpless state. You can't help yourself. But God comes along and God has mercy. And he says, but God has quickened us. And he says, by grace, are you saved? So if you ever wonder how you're saved, We believe the scriptures teach that you're saved by grace. One hundred percent. Totally. Not grace and works. Not grace and an action. Not grace and a choice. Not grace and belief. You're saved totally by the grace of almighty God. One hundred percent. He says for by grace are you saved. You may say, well, I look at my life and I realize that I've missed the mark. So many times I've made wrong decisions. I've gone the wrong way. I've made wrong choices. Well, the good news is that if you're a child of God and you're heaven bound, it's not based on your decisions or your actions. It's not based upon you. uh, The scale, the old fashioned scale that one side would outweigh the other and that your good works would outweigh the bad works. It's not based upon that. There's no way that you could ever even level the scale. It's based on one thing, and that's God's sovereign grace. And that always tempts the scale 100% of the time in favor of the child of God. It's based on his grace. Then he comes down. He says, and he has raised us up to sit together and made us sit together in heavenly places that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And then he says it again. He says it a couple more times but here in verse 8 he says it again for by grace are ye saved through faith now just in case you get to thinking that you need to go out and get some faith in order to be saved he clears that up in the, ver- in the remaining portion of the verse he says by the way you're not even the author of the faith that you have you can't go get your faith you can't create faith you can't go find faith faith Is what God gives you. It's almost, best way I can describe it, it's a package deal. God blesses you with faith when he gives you spiritual life. He blesses you with the desire and ability to believe him. He blesses you with the desire and ability to follow him, to know him, to love him. And it comes as as the result of spiritual life. And so he says... For by grace are you saved through faith. And he says, by the way, that's not of yourselves. He says, just to remind you that your salvation is through God's grace. And by the way, it's a gift of God. Now, that's good news to hear. Good news to know that our salvation is the gift of God. Now, let me ask you, you think God, unlike maybe some of us, have you ever given a gift and taken it back? Have you ever given a gift and had some strings attached to it? God's not that way. When God gives a gift, he doesn't take it back. He doesn't have any strings attached to it. When God gives a gift, the gift of eternal salvation, it's yours and it's yours from now on. You're going to be the beneficiary of it in heaven itself. He says... You're saved by grace through faith. And he says, that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. And he says, by the way, this gift is not of works. Because he said, if it was based on works, he says it right here. He said, we boast about it. I mean, isn't it amazing how we like to boast on our little accomplishments? We like to get credit for the little accomplishments. And if God put us in charge of populating heaven, I've known folks that thought they were in charge of populating heaven and, and they, they did get a lot of pleasure out of uh, feeling like that they had won some souls for the Lord. And, and really, I mean, you probably would think that if you thought that you were helping populate heaven. The population of heaven was predetermined for, for, for the foundation of the world. And there's not anything that you and I can do to add to that or take away from it. We'd probably take away from it if we did anything at all. But he says it's a free gift, and he says it's not of works because he says the first thing we would do is we'd boast about it. We'd try to take some of the credit. The Scripture says, let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. That's the only place that we can glory in our eternal salvation. The only, in any deliverance that we have. Now, I I don't know if that's the speaker or or, or where it's coming from, but uh, I hope we can... Look past it. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works are very important. Good works are what we should do and what we should pursue. But the good works are because we're a child of God, a child of the king. Another place in Second Timothy uh, chapter 1. Here's another example. This is a great chapter here. Paul is uh, addressing Timothy right here. And he thanks God for Timothy and he thanks God for Timothy's mother and his grandmother. And he says, uh, he says, I'm thankful for the faith, Timothy, that that you have. It's it's uh, the faith that you have in your life and the witness that you are. And he says, by the way, I saw that same faith in your mother and your grandmother. And he brings attention to that. And he says, uh, and it was uh, the gift and blessing of God. Verse eight, uh, verse seven, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. That's not, if if it's a fear tactic that's used, it's not of God. God's grace is good news. The message of Jesus Christ is good news. It's, It's good news. He says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore, Paul telling Timothy, ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel to the power of God. And then he says, who hath saved us? It's interesting that he puts that in a past tense form. He says, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. And he says, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's interesting what he says right here. He says, God has saved us, past tense. He's called us with a holy calling. And he says, by the way, it is not according to our works. But it is according to his own purpose and grace. God is a God of purpose. God doesn't just haphazardly do anything. God is a God of purpose. And when he purposed to save you eternally, he always fulfills his purpose. He says, you're saved according to his purpose and you're saved according to his grace. Now, just in case we get the mindset that we think that it requires the gospel To save us, let's look what he says right here, because he even highlights that. He says, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ... Before the world began. So he said, This was arranged from before the world began that God purposed to save you, and He saved you by His grace, and He saved you in spite of yourselves. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me to know that He saved me, that He chose me, that He redeemed me, and He purposed to do it, and He did it solely by His amazing grace. And then this is what it says Gospel's important. Very important. The gospel is a great blessing. You're here this morning because you want to hear a message of the gospel. The gospel is a good news of Jesus Christ. You want to know more about Christ. You want to know more about how that you can live in a way. You want to know more about how you can be a godly father or a godly mother or a godly brother or sister or child. You want to know more about Christ. You want to know more about how you can live and follow Christ and the gospel tells you that. And here's what he says. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And Paul says, and where I'm appointed a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. So what he's saying right here is the gospel itself doesn't give the life. But the gospel shines the light on the life that you have. The gospel is what teaches you what Christ has done for you. You know it in your mind because he wrote it in your mind and he wrote it in your heart and you know it. And then when you hear the gospel, you can say, you know what? That's talking about me. That's talking about what he's done for me. That's talking about who Christ is. I know it because it bears witness with what he wrote in my heart, with what he wrote in my mind. And so the gospel is not putting it in your mind and heart for the first time. He is the one that writes it there. He writes it in our hearts and he writes it in our minds. And then the gospel comes along and it bears witness with what you have in your heart and in your mind. And then you can praise him. So the gospel doesn't get any credit for saving anybody. But the gospel gets all the credit. I, I, I won't say all the credit. Gives a lot of the credit for you knowing who Christ is and what He's done for you. It's written in your heart and in your mind. I say uh, I'll say a lot of the credit because uh, I, I was I was told that Helen Keller, who couldn't see, who couldn't hear. I remember I was just a very young child when I first learned about Helen Keller. I'm sure even these young children here know who Helen Keller is. She she didn't couldn't see. She couldn't hear. She had difficulty communicating. They devised a system. Kind of like Elsa did with her children at an early age a uh, sign language and, and they begin to be able to communicate with her and when they told her about Jesus Christ she said her response was oh that's his name she already knew it even though she couldn't see she couldn't hear God writes it in our minds he writes it in our hearts and he does it completely without the aid or the assistance of man whatsoever And I, I, I I, I'm thankful for the gospel, but the gospel is not what saves you. It's the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. We believe in irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. We would resist it if we could, but we believe in God's irresistible grace. And he reaches the wretched sinner just like he re- just like he was able to reach John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. John Newton wasn't pursuing Christ; he was going away from Christ. When God and Christ apprehended him and turned him around, God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. Oh, uh, grace is grace is um, it's, it's so good for. It's so good for our daily living as well. You ever heard somebody say, well, God's not going to put more on you than you can bear. Uh, You you probably thought of that. You probably heard that. I think this might be where that came from. I don't think this is exactly what it says, but I believe that this is probably the principle that uh, where they, where it came from. Just going to touch on just a couple more right here. Heard someone say that God's not going to put on you more than what you can bear. I think this might be where this came from. Second Corinthians chapter 12. The principle is right. But, but some of the things that, that that come your way, God's not putting them on you. Some of the things that come your way, it's because we put them on ourselves. And if we don't put them on ourselves, sometimes other people will put them on us. But it's not God. And you can't blame God for putting some things on you. Now, God can and God can restrain it. God's in charge. But in this case, it was Satan. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes he puts some things on me. Maybe maybe he's giving you a break. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, Paul is sort of analyzing this. This is really good. This is so good. And all of us, I think, can relate to this principle that's taught down here. Paul said, I like how he says this. This is he's he's relating his experience. And it really it's neat the way he says it. It really wasn't up for debate with Paul. Paul said, I'm just telling you like it is. Uh, Some of you were here and heard this account uh, firsthand. We had a uh, we had a bus trip to uh, Hopewell, New Jersey, And uh, took about 50 people on the bus to uh, three days of services up there. And we all remember brother and sister Polk. What a blessing they were. And so sister Polk sitting by the window of the bus and this was their first bus trip. They'd just been baptized. They were so excited. And we were headed to a church meeting for three days in Hopewell, New Jersey and Southampton, Pennsylvania. And. And Sister Polk's sitting on the passenger, on the, by the window of the bus, and, and other folks, some that are here, overheard what she said. And, and uh, she said, uh, Philadelphia, 25 miles. Well, Brother Polk wasn't sitting by the window. And he said to her, he said, Philadelphia is not that direction, and Philadelphia is not 25 miles. And she said, I'm just telling you what the sign said. (laughs) Well, Paul's just telling us his experience here. And here's what he says. He says, it is not expedient for me to glory. He says, I've come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. He says, whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell. He says, God knoweth. He mentions that twice. He just simply says, I don't know if I was in the body. I don't know if I was out of the body. All I know is I heard some things and I saw some things that I don't have the words to tell. He says, I was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, You can debate about whether he was there or not. He says, I don't know. But he says, God knows. And that's all that really matters. And he says, And I knew a man talking about himself, whether in the body or out of the body. I cannot tell God knoweth. And he says how that he was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable words, which are not lawful for man to utter. Paul saw some things. He heard some things. And he says, I don't even have the words to utter what I saw and heard. And he says, he says uh, he was caught up into paradise. But he says of such a one. Of of such and one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but I will glory in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I should not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear lest any man should think above me that which he seeth me to be or that which he heareth of me. Paul says, I'm not going to glory in this experience. I'm afraid to glory in this experience. And I don't want to get any glory from other people about this experience. He says, I don't know if I was in the body, out of the body. God knoweth that. I know I heard some things. I know I saw some things. But he said, if I glory in anything at all, it's my infirmities, not what Christ has done in showing me these great revelations right here. And then he says, and also... And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation. Paul says, lest I get full of myself. Lest I get lifted up in pride. Lest I get lifted up in self. He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, interesting point right here. Uh, Some folks have decided that they knew what that thorn was. I've heard a variety of comments. Some said that Paul probably had poor vision, and that that was the thorn that he had. It was a physical thorn that he had. Well, sometimes we have physical thorns in the flesh. We really do. I've heard others say that they thought it was an individual. That was just a thorn in his side. You ever had somebody who's just a thorn in your side? Well, it doesn't say that that's what it was. Some folks have suspected that that's it. Some folks have suspected that it's a particular struggle or temptation or sin that Paul had. That he was struggling with. It's interesting that it doesn't tell us exactly what it is, and there's a reason that it doesn't. Because if it was his eyesight, we wouldn't be able to relate to it. We might could relate to him if it was somebody was the thorn in our side. I could relate to that. Or a particular physical affliction. But the reason that it doesn't say exactly what that particular thorn was is so that you and I, each one of us, can take that particular struggle that we have and we can put it right there. And you might be able to say, it says right here that Paul prayed three times that that thorn would be taken away. You might say, I prayed 300 times. Or even more than that. The reason that it doesn't say exactly what it is is so you can take your thorn and you can put it right there. But I want you to see the good news. Paul says this thorn in the flesh. And by the way, look at how he describes it. Now, God allowed this, but God didn't cause it. Look what he says. He said this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. Satan's behind it. I have some good news for you. Satan can only do as much as what God lets him do. There is a hedge round about every single one of us. You have the example in the book of Job. If it wasn't for that hedge, we wouldn't still be here. We wouldn't. I I know that that hedge is around me. I'm just saying, even just driving. You may know that too. But I I know that, that there are times that I've been spared. That if it hadn't have been by an intervention of some part. I don't believe it would have been. And probably you're the same way. You're probably here because of that hedge that God has put around you. But sometimes God removes that hedge back a little bit and lets Satan throw a fiery dart. Paul said the reason that he did that right here is for this reason. He said, number one, so I would not get exalted in the flesh. There may be a reason that God hasn't delivered the thorn from your side, whatever that thorn is. But he said something and brother Danny mentioned and he said, this is Christ saying these words. Well, in my Bible and I expect in yours too, it's in red. It's quoting Christ. Paul says, for this thing, I talked to the Lord and I said, Lord, would you remove it from my side? Would you take it from me? And he said, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed to the Lord. And he said, the Lord did not remove it from me. But he says, The good news is that the message that I got rather than God removing the thorn in the flesh is that he says, and this is Christ saying this, every single one of us can claim this right here. He says, my grace, God's grace is good for us to take us home to glory. It's good for us to save us eternally, but God's grace is good for us to get through this life. And he says, my grace, no matter what your trial, no matter what your thorn, no matter what your affliction is, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't think it just means it's barely good enough. I think it's over and abundantly enough for each one of us. So no matter what your trial, if you haven't been delivered from it, you have the promise right here. This is all inclusive for every single one of us right here that my grace, God's grace is sufficient. For our trial, no matter what it is, and he says, "For my strength is made perfect in weakness." Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen tells us that we can uh, that we can come to our high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and we can find grace and mercy in time of need. So, when you have times of need, anybody here ever have any needs? I, I, I'm glad I'm the only one that does. But he tells us right here that we have a throne of grace that we can go to and we can go before the high priest who is touched and feels the infirmities of you and I. And the good news is that we can come boldly. I don't think that means at all arrogantly. It does not mean that. What it means is that we can come boldly with confidence in Christ. That Christ has delivered us in times past. That Christ has the power to deliver us. That Christ is able to deliver us. And when he says we can come boldly, not boldly in our own self, but boldly in the strength of Christ. We can come boldly under the throne of grace. And we can find grace to help in time of need. We need grace every single day that we live. I'm thankful that we're saved by God's grace, that that is the medium and the motivation that God has to give us eternal life. I'm thankful that he he saves us eternally by his grace. But I tell you what, I'm so thankful that he gives us grace to live by each and every day of our life, that his grace is sufficient for our every single trial. In Genesis chapter six tells us that Moses and his family were saved by God's amazing grace. I'm going to finish up with uh, one portion of Scripture right here. You say, "What? What do we? What do we do with all of this? If we if we know this that uh, God has saved us by His grace, here's what we do because we have it. First Peter chapter uh, four. We'll start with um, uh, we'll start with verse. Uh, Ache. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves for charity covers a multitude of sins. That just simply means that you express kindness and love and compassion to your brothers and sisters, to your family. And it says it's amazing how that charity, it says, will minimize those uh, those sins. Um, here's an example. First hand example. I'm only going to read three verses here, so just hang with me just a minute here. Brother Sonny Piles was a well-known, able preacher, probably one of the most able ministers among um, in his time. Well-known minister. And somebody came up to him and and told him after a church meeting, said, uh, Brother Sonny, did you know, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? He said, No. I didn't hear what they they said. And so he proceeded to tell him whatever it was that they told about Brother Sonny. Brother Sonny said, you know, he says, I really can't hardly believe they said that. But he says, if they did, he said, I'm going to sift that through about 25 years of good experiences with that brother. I've loved that brother. We've worshipped together. I've had 25 good years of experiences with that brother. And when I sift that one little thing through 25 years of good experiences, it makes it really, really small. That's what he's saying right here. He says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity covers a multitude of sins. He says, just simply exercise charity. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Hospitality is a trait that we should embrace and exercise as every man. This is the verse as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What he's simply saying right here is this, I believe that God has saved you with his grace. God sustains you with his grace each and every day. And now you take what God has done for you and you go and help somebody else and encourage somebody else. You take those blessings that God has given you and you look for somebody else that you yourself can help others with. You take the grace of God. You tell others about how he saved you. You take, tell others about how he delivers you each and every day of your life here in time. How that he sustains you and delivers you. And you take that grace that God's given you and you go find somebody else to help. That's what he's referring to right here. For by grace you get saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is. And it's a a manifold, a multitude of God's amazing gifts through his grace. And we're the beneficiaries of it. We really are.